I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. We are here in my office in Colorado at the Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport. This time, we're going to be talking about a variety of things that, again, have come out and have been forthcoming since our last podcast regarding the Lion Air accident. The National Transportation Safety Committee, which is the Indonesian version of the NTSB, has recently released their report on the Lion Air 610 accident, so we're going to be getting into that. But I wanted to say that uh, we've received a lot of comments from listeners, which we greatly appreciate regarding not only the quality of the show, the topics that we've been discussing, but giving us suggestions for future shows. And a couple of those suggestions involved women in aviation. That is, there are a number of issues that have involved women, whether they're flying the aircraft or fixing the aircraft or even managing the aircraft, that we've been asked to address. And so we're going to be looking at uh, those kinds of issues in future shows. We're going to have, of course, some subject matter experts. We are fortunate enough to have Shinar uh, Shah, who was a 737 MAX pilot from India, talk to us about uh, flying the MAX. So that was one of those things that prompted uh, a lot of feedback, really, to, uh, to get more involved with some of the women's issues. You know, in, in years ago, uh, when I worked for the governor of Massachusetts, we had uh, issues with women in construction, which are very similar to the problems that uh, women, I believe, today are having in this male-dominating business that we call aviation. And it's amazing how many have broken through and put up with a lot of BS uh, from men. And it, it's not just in the aviation uh, flying side, it's in the hangars, it's in all, all areas. And air traffic control, if you look back in the history, FAA's history of lawsuits, there's a ton of them in air traffic control involving controllers and what they've done to want to be female controllers. So it, uh, it is a subject that hasn't gone away. In fact, if you listen to some of the, the people that we've talked to, it seems to be maybe even growing. So we'll, we're going to tackle it and put it up on the table. And one of the things that I've long said about aviation is that unlike some other industries, when we finally do put problems on the table in the light of day and start talking about them openly, it's amazing how many of them get corrected. So we're going to do our part to try to get these 
in the light of day. Yeah, that's great, John. And I think that, you know, in looking at some of the feedback, I think that, again, these are timely issues. We appreciate the feedback because that's what we're trying to do is address the interest of the listeners. Of course, John and I give our uh, our opinions based on our expertise, especially when it comes to aviation safety issues and accident investigation. But we also know that there are a lot of other issues out there that we can address. And if we can start that dialogue and get people at least talking about it openly again, maybe there is this call to action. Maybe something will, in fact, happen. Some of the other feedback that we've received, of course, is select accidents. That is, people have asked us about certain accidents and whether or not we would dissect these accidents, identify some of the things that they think haven't been properly addressed or or uh, identified in these reports. So John and I are going to tackle those uh, those accidents and, uh, and do our dissection and identify those critical issues and uh, the shortcomings and, of course, the missed opportunities to identify those things that could enhance aviation safety. And, of course, we're going to be discussing both the Lion Air and the forthcoming Ethiopian report. Lion Air, John and I are going to be spending multiple podcasts talking about these particular accidents and especially now with uh, the Lion Air report out. And, of course, then we're going to actually touch on the congressional hearing, the recent congressional hearing, where both the Senate and the House actually grilled the uh, CEO of uh, of Boeing Aircraft, Dennis Mullenberg, and um, he was uh, accompanied by John Hamilton, one of the senior engineers at Boeing. So we're going to touch on that as well. But today in, in discussing the Lion Air report, we're going to try and dissect this sequentially. That is, we're going to take it apart piece by piece by piece. Now, one of the things that has bothered me for the last couple of weeks is all the uh, internet information, whether it's on Facebook, which I've received and participated in other podcasts where people have lauded the fact that the Ethio or the uh, Indonesians have put out this very lengthy 320 plus page report. There's a lot of factual information in it, but as John and I are going to start going through it, one of the big issues is that it doesn't answer a lot of the questions. And we're going to point out those issues, those facts, those questions that have not been addressed, those issue areas that have not been properly developed. It's evident to me personally that I think that they've selectively filtered a lot of the information that should be in here. There is a, an interpretation, if you will, in a summary of what was contained on the cockpit voice recorder. It's not actual verbatim. It is a summary. And we've learned from the past when we've summarized or at least participated in investigations where they don't release an actual transcript, the summaries don't always tell the whole story. So we're going to be talking about that as well. But the big issue for us is the sequencing of where did this accident sequence start. Everybody wants to talk about the fact that the MCAS system was the initiating factor, and this report actually shows that MCAS didn't get involved in the accident sequence until late in the flight. And we'll talk about that. We'll point these issue areas out. We'll show you where this is. We're going to ask the questions. And, um, and as John is going to, to try and answer, I'm going to really dissect the maintenance stuff because I think, and I think John thinks, that uh, this is where really this whole accident sequence starts, two days before the accident. Well, actually, it starts even longer than that. If you go back to October 9th, they've got problems. 
And when I first had uh, received this information about the maintenance issues and looked at it, and it was within hours after the accident where somebody sent me some material and I look at it, I was screaming at the pages. I mean, it was really unbelievable. You know, as a mechanic, on flight line mechanic in particular, for many, many years, responsible for an airplane that would come in with these kinds of problems, to have it released over and over and over would obviously without fixing the problems. Now, you know, the first time it comes in, you're going to go through and you're going to try to address it. Right? That's the first time. When you start getting it coming up again and again, you know, somebody should have said, enough, this airplane's not going anywhere until we get this thing nailed down, till we find a cause. And it looks like, you know, again, reading through the report, I found some very interesting things in footnotes that could lead us to really understand what was going on. It was obvious from just reading the maintenance stuff, we're going to get into this, the fact that they were trying to milk this airplane to one of their bigger maintenance bases to fix problems that were occurring on the road. And you're going to dissect that, I think, because some of this is just, in my view, pure ridiculousness. No one would ever release an airplane like with the problems that uh, were going on, put it back into revenue service to get it to a to maintenance base. But I think before that, John, you and I should talk about a little bit about what are the critical elements? You know, when we talk about acts investigation, it's not just a matter of going out there, kicking tin, gathering a bunch of information and then putting it in a nice, big, you know, fancy report. You have to do the proper analysis, but you can't do a proper analysis without having developed all the facts, conditions, and circumstances of that event, and then utilize the information, especially from a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder that is unfiltered. And there's always been a question, even here in the United States, when we summarize certain issues that occur that we've heard on the CVR. This unfiltered information is the critical information. That's the basis for really understanding the context of what's transpiring in the airplane and then looking at it against the flight data recorder to see what's actually happening to the airplane while the crew is addressing a situation, trying to fly the airplane, trying to identify issues and that kind of thing. And I think this report falls short and in if the listeners stay with us for the multiple podcasts, we're going to hit the maintenance issues today in our future podcast. We're going to be then walking through the history of flight, the history of flight of this report. And by the way, the report can be found on the PAMA website. P-A-M-A dot org. So PAMA, P-A-M-A dot org. The entire report is posted in, in the event that someone hasn't seen it. You know, sometimes they pull them down from uh, various sources, but we don't intend to pull that down. It's going to be up on PAMA for a while because we're going to talk about it. Uh, because of the maintenance issues, the cultural issues, you know, PAMA does a service for its members and, and even people that are not its members in trying to get the facts out there to the maintenance community where many times the reports don't get the facts out. In fact, this report in front of us today, Lion Air, they just gloss over the many problems that occurred within the maintenance department for various and assorted reasons, and we'll talk to them. But there's, uh, you know, failure to correct the airplane. There was uh, the training of personnel. We heard on one of our previous podcasts with someone who was very experienced working in Asia that they train six or seven, they have six or seven untrained personnel for every trained person that they have. Well, 
this report doesn't address whether or not any of these people that have worked on this airplane and didn't correct the problems were in fact trained or not trained. And that's what really amazes me, John, when I was reading through the report, especially in the maintenance section, where, like you said, there was a, a, a continuous cascading effect with problems with the airplane, whether it was because it was brand new or it was through in-service use or a combination of both. The fact of the matter is, is that this airplane had a history. And unfortunately, as that history grew with these multiple maintenance issues, of course, the basically, I, I look at it as the, the buck was being passed because when these airplanes were identified with issues out at the outstations, the maintenance was minimal to try and get the airplane milked back to a bigger maintenance base. And I think it's very evident when you start looking in this report, and I encourage everyone to read the report. The problem that I've seen with people that have already talked about this report is they aren't looking at all of the little idiosyncrasies, the lost information, the non-addressed issues that the Indonesians basically move from, they jump from one element to another because all they're doing is citing fact, but they don't do any analysis in the very end as to how how influential some of these issues are. And I think one of the things that, you know, we recently discussed is when you look at the history, like you said, back from October 9th prior to the accident, there were continuous, persistent problems, especially with the AOA, the AOA vein, the stall warning, the air data signals. I mean, it's it's crazy, John, that this airplane would be continued to fly like this, be returned to service like this, even after maintenance folks identified issues. Well, I tell you what, it clearly indicates a culture problem with this operation. And it's a culture that seems to cross department lines. So, you know, when I look at the maintenance side, they will clearly keep the metal going, keep the airplane going. We'll keep trying to fix it, but we're not fixing it. We'll just keep it going and give the burden to fly the airplane to the pilots. And then you have pilots that are willing to accept that. I mean, the, the one, when we get to it, the pilot that, that flew the airplane for an hour or two hours, whatever it was, with the stick shaker. The entire flight? The entire flight. I mean, that's, that's telling. And that should have been in the analysis of this report. And what's clear to me, when I look at how they analyze the facts that they have in their own report, that they chose to ignore some of the ones that wouldn't cast them in a bad light. Yeah. They ignored the ones in the hangar, all the problems in the three weeks of pushing this airplane around without fixing it. They ignored the problems in the cockpit with pilots. When this airplane came in the night before the accident, and, the, and we know that the pilots had a bunch of problems. They had an additional pilot in the cockpit that supposedly helped them solve the problems. So they could fly the airplane with the problems all day and bring it back to maintenance. And then there was no write-up in the logbook. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you – How that's just not fathomable. I mean, these are professional pilots flying for an airline in another country that's overseen by a regulatory authority. How is it that these pilots would even accept an airplane, especially even after the maintenance guy talked to them and said, hey, you still have these problems, but go ahead and take the airplane anyway? I mean, it's just nuts. And then the thing that caught my attention was after the first series of events, when they started to go through the processes and procedures to troubleshoot, which are very um, uh, detailed. detailed in the report, the engineer at one of the places just decides he's going to reset all the circuit breakers. And guess what? Magically, all the problems go away. 
I mean, look, John, you've worked in the hangar for a heck of a long time. Who just resets circuit breakers? The magic happens. All the all the error message goes away. I go, okay, the airplane's fixed. Yeah, you don't do that early in the process. You may do that after when you think you've got the handle on it and extracted all the information you can from the current state. And then you can start playing around reset breakers, but you've got to gather all the information you can in the beginning. And there is no indication that they did that. There's another one in here where they came out to the airplane and all the circuit breakers were popped. And that was in, uh, yeah. uh, this was early on, October 9th. All the circuit breakers were popped. Well, circuit breakers don't just pop. They pop for a reason. Yeah. Right, so this guy goes out there, resets all the breakers, powers up the airplane, starts the engines. Yeah, they stayed in. Everything's good. Signs it off. Sends it away. That- blows my mind. And then when you look at it, it continues. So on October 27th, two days before the accident, they have all these problems. The engineer goes out, resets all the circuit breakers. There is no fault found. It passes. So they return the airplane to service only to have that same mechanic go out and tell the pilots, hey, you know, we think we got this problem rectified, but you still got these issues. We can't really fix it here. Get the airplane to Dempasar because they, they can do the, the maintenance there. They return an airplane to service into revenue operation with known problems. Who does that? Indonesia. It is nuts. And then on the 28th, the day before the accident, of course, they still have these issues. Now the airplane's in Dempasar. The mechanics go out there and start working on it. And what do they do? They do their troubleshooting, supposedly by the AMM. But what do they do? They do what the guy did previous. That is, they reset all the circuit breakers. And of course, no fault found. Airplane's good to go. That's just a culture waiting for an accident to happen. Setting it up, setting the flight crew up. And it really is tragedy. When you look at the sequence of events with the known problems with this airplane and the fact that they were willing, the company, because these mechanics are company representatives, the company was willing to put this airplane in service with people on board and put not only these passengers in a position of jeopardy, but their flight crew. Because now they're basically saying, yeah, we really didn't get the airplane fixed. We expect you to be able to fly it with all these problems. And the fact that they had flown that airplane with the stick shaker, that's the stall warning system on the airplane, activated throughout the flight. There is not a pilot that I know of that would ever fly an airplane Well, the fault like that for an hour and a half or whatever it was. I mean, that just makes no sense. The airplane should should have stayed on the ground, should have been fixed in place wherever it was. There's a few things with airplanes you can't screw around with, right? From a mechanic's point of view, you can't have a number of instrument failures without finding the cause. All those circuit breakers, you've got to go find the cause. They don't just pop on their own. The stick shaker going off nonstop, you can't reset it. Right. Just fly the airplane like that. Just I can't even think of the words to say how bad that is. And the fact that that stick shaker is a critical safety item in the airplane because it does tell the pilot if the airplane is in a, a particular attitude, you're getting into the regime of an aerodynamic stall. But now you've got it going off in normal flight. You've just negated its whole safety purpose. For what? To get the airplane from a, you know, a lousy place where they really don't have good maintenance to a better place where, eh, just get it fixed over there. A lot of it comes to money, John. 
Well, I think that's what the case is here. It clearly is, is, uh, looks like it's the, the gorilla in the room as they need to keep making money to support a growing operation. You know, many people that I talk to don't understand aerodynamic stall. And they know enough about flying to say, hey, I'm looking out the window. I've got the power on. I can fly it. But they don't, see, don't realize that an aerodynamic stall can occur with the airplane with a normal attitude. It doesn't yeah. have to be having nose climbing for the sky. Yeah. It's all about your airspeed, the configuration of the airplane. And uh, you get it too slow, it's going to fall out of the sky. And if you get it too slow and don't pay attention to it, let it get even slower, you can't correct. And again, not only was it that the stick shaker was going off, but they had airspeed disagree messages. They had altitude disagree messages. This wasn't just on the day of the accident. This was in these previous flights. And again, how is it that a pilot is supposed to fly the airplane? What information is, quote, reliable? What are they going to use as the most reliable information for reference for their assigned headings, their assigned altitudes, and, of course, assigned airspeeds? And then, of course, the prescribed airspeeds for critical phases of flight, such as takeoff and landing. You know, so right off the bat, what you're saying, so the generator control unit, this airplane has two generators, generator control unit. The circuit breakers for both of them are popped. What are we going to get, a surprise in flight when we lose both, both generators? Right? Where are we going to get the electricity to fly the airplane? From the APU? Right? And there's also the APU break also popped. So you had all three circuit breakers pop, controlling electricity on this airplane. Good luck. It's not a piper. Yeah. And when it comes to looking at this, you know, John and I are, are being very critical, but this is the information that the NTSC developed. This is the, the background of this particular airplane with not only the accident flight crew, but crews that flew this airplane or touched this airplane, both maintenance crews and flight crews, on the days previous or prior to the accident. So what, what the, the big issue is here is what influence did all of these faults, the lack of maintenance or improper maintenance or failure to fix the problem, what influence did that have on the outcome of this flight. That's where accident investigation takes you. It is not just day of. You have to look back. You have to look for systemic issues versus isolated events. And when when you look at this, this was a maintenance nightmare, this airplane. For whatever reason, this was a maintenance nightmare. And we haven't even gotten to the AOA vein yet. This was just other issues. And when it comes to uh, looking at the angle of attack sensor, because it was then determined by these maintenance folks to be faulty on the left side, they then decided, okay, we're going to have to replace it. But then again, there is a, a, a sequence of errors here. They can't find a spare AOA because the airplane is in, um, was in Dempasar and it wasn't available to them. And so they had to order it. Now, this is a brand new airplane, John. It's technically under a bumper-to-bumper -bumper warranty. Why wouldn't they go to Boeing, since it's a new airplane, and talk to their Boeing field service rep, who's, they've got a number of them in that particular region, call them and go, hey, we need an AOA vein, or we've got a, a problem with this AOA uh, vein, get us a new one. Rather, they go to this third-party maintenance company, Bantam Aero Technique, and they order, not a new one, they order one from them, and they're going to be sent sometime later. 
an overhaul used one off of an NG airplane, a 737-900NG that had gone back to a fact or a um, repair station, was supposedly repaired, fixed, returned to service. That's what they put on this airplane. And now, in hindsight, well, this we can say a little opinionated here, the, uh, the outfit that did the work had their certificates revoked just this past week because they were making repairs to these units with the improper tools and equipment, not following the, the published procedures, all things that they are not allowed to do under the FARs and under their certificate. So they were doing what they thought was right. They maybe had engineers working with them, but they should have modified the manual. They should have gone back to the manufacturer to make sure that what they were doing was correct and approved and what's, uh, procedure. And, and what's more egregious, John, is that when you read the history of that particular AOA probe or vein, before it went down, it came off an airplane in 2017. It was sent out for repair. The problems that were listed in the original um, write-up were that they had indicated airspeed disagree messages and, and things like that. That's what prompted them to send it out for overhaul. It comes back. It gets put on the accident airplane. Guess what messages showed up? They were identical to the messages that got that, air, that AOA probe off the airplane in the first place back in 2017. So was that probe really fixed? The question I have for you is now they put this AOA vein on the airplane. They supposedly did some level of calibration, yet it was still 21 degrees different than the other one. I have the procedure right out of the maintenance manual. I've read it repeatedly. It is unbelievable that they screwed that up. It really, I can't, I can't figure out how they managed to screw it up, if they did it. Yeah. Now, well, that's, that's, how, that's how you can screw it up. But they didn't have the tool to put on the front where you can actually measure the increments of degrees. So as an alternative method, they allow you just to, to measure full deflections to see how it goes, uh, stacks up against the box inside, the yard dampener. And you can read the deflection. It's basic. It, it's pretty simple. And they still had a 21-degree differential. So, I mean, again, if you look at just those facts in isolation and you say, well, they put a new one on, they were supposed to do these procedures to calibrate this thing, yet there's still a 21-degree offset. What's the logical deduction here? Man, that they didn't do it. Yeah. Right. And why didn't they record the, the findings? That's even more egregious. Why didn't they record the findings? That, then, is another piece of evidence that says they probably didn't do it. Yep. Or they, they didn't know what they were doing. Again, we get back to what I said a few minutes ago. In this, this part of the world, we only train one out of six or one out of seven technicians on the airplane. Who knows who was on the clock that night? Who was there to work on the airplane? Did it get the best talent? Did it get somebody that was familiar with this? I mean, there's a lot of variables in there. In a normal investigation... We would have gone through that. If you look at what the FAA just did to the repair station that they revocated in Florida, they went in, they had the technicians who, whose name appeared on the documents as repairing it. They sat him down at his workstation and said, now do one and show us what you did. Yeah. yeah. And what I don't see in this report is that. We don't know who worked on this airplane. We don't know their qualifications. We don't know who was responsible. We don't know who signed off on this. We don't know how they did the installation because nobody interviewed them, or at least if they did, it doesn't show up in the report. 
We don't know what their quals are. Were they the guy in charge with the qualifications or were they one of the underlings, the understudies, that they were told, hey, just go out there, bolt this thing back on and do what you need to do? We would have done that. We would have dissected all of that if that accident happened here in the United States because that's what we do. That's what accident investigation is all about is to identify if there are any shortcomings in the maintenance personnel, qualifications and experience, if there's any deficiencies in the training or the knowledge about a system. Not all mechanics can do all things on an airplane. We would have dissected that. But there is this report is silent when it comes to that the people that were involved touching this airplane, not just in Dempasar, but in Manadu and in other places. And I mean, I just find that just, I don't know, I don't even have a word for it, because this is the basis for where this whole entire accident sequence starts. Right. Step one, ground zero. And the, uh, the whole training issue never has gotten the light of day. You know, I often say to groups that I'm talking to, we introduce a new airplane, commercial airplane, and pilots go away for a month probably or more to get pilot training. Maintenance people are lucky to get a week. Yeah. Right? And with these electronic airplanes, sometimes a week is not enough. Yeah. And uh, so that area uh, needs to get a look at. And because it's not highlighted in this report, we're going to miss an opportunity to highlight that and get uh, some focus. Remember what I said early on, the light of day? Yeah. If we put the light of day on what the training is really like, in the, not only here in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., in the maintenance areas, we might get some better training provided. And the thing that, again, struck me when I was reading just the maintenance section of this report, I mean, the NTSC wrote a lot of detailed information. They talk about the fact that the engineer in Dempasari conducted these tests on the digital flight control system, which they got a pass with. Then he erased all the status messages. Is that normal procedure? Why would you do that? No, you do that to get rid of the airplane. That's what you do. The truth be known, that's one way to get rid of the airplane. Eliminate the messages. So that you don't have that historical record that, hey, we got all these problems going on. And then maybe you'll throw a black box at it and get it out of town. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And then I think this is a real telling moment that, again, it was addressed. A lot of this information is just a regurgitation of factual information. Here's the fact, here's the fact, here's the fact. They did a great job in regurgitating all this factual information, but then they don't use it at the very end, to talk about what influence it had on sequence of events. And I think here's another telling part out of this report. The engineer in Dempasar provided the investigation several photographs, including that of the captain's PFD, which is their primary flight display, that was claimed to be taken after the AOA sensor replacement and a functional test after the install. However, again, the investigators were able to find that the time shown on the captain's PFD was the time before arrival of the actual spare AOA sensor that they eventually put on the airplane and that the investigation confirmed that the, the SMYD test or uh, pictures of, of the probe were not of the accident aircraft. That's falsification. That's intentionally misleading. That's right. They cite it as a fact and they bury it in here and then they never address it again. What action was taken against those people? What were they trying to hide? Why did they do that? What compelled them? Who compelled them to do that? You know, I wonder, thinking out loud, most of the maintenance on this airplane was done by a contract company. 
that is at least partially owned by the airline. So they're not their direct employees of the airline. So that makes them an arm's length. How much of that played in here? We don't know. You know, is their training the same as the airlines? Maybe it's even less than what the airlines do. But then what responsibility does the airline have as an overseer of that contractor since they're responsible because these people, even though they work for a different company, they are acting on behalf as if they were an airline employee. Right. And do they have a, they, do they have one of their employees at each of these locations? Are they handling it over the phone? I mean, there's a lot of questions that have not been asked and answered. It's just frustrating to read this and, and uh, see these problems, these holes, and they go away. And the fact that they didn't utilize all of the resources that were available to them. You had Boeing. They're the manufacturer, but they have field service reps all over the world. You have chronic, continuous problems like this. Call these guys. That's what they're there for. They're the resource. They come out the whole troubleshoot. They, they do all of the work with you so that you can get to the actual solution, not just a Band-Aid fix to milk the airplane around. And, of course, in this particular instance, even after they supposedly found what the issue was, which was the AOA vein, again, they did the installation, but they never did all the follow-up to ensure that it was accurate. Now you've put a pilot in a position of jeopardy because you sent him off in an airplane where you're already going to know that you're going to have faults and false information, but eh, he's just a pilot. He'll figure it out. That's not the way it works. How's he going to figure it out? He doesn't even know know what the problem was because it wasn't written up. That is even more egregious, I think. I mean, it was one thing that when the airplane was in uh, Manadu, that that engineer came out, told the crew, hey, you know what? We think we fixed the problem. Get the airplane to Depisar where they have better equipment and better tools to, to fix the problem. So you're still going to have these faults. Okay. So that was a, a conversation that at least the crew knew. Now they should have said, we're not taking this airplane, but they got in the airplane, fired it up and, and flew it with the stick shaker going for an hour and a half. But then when this crew landed, they never wrote anything up. They never talked about the issues. They never talked about the fact that the stick shaker was activated for an hour and a half. They never talked about trim. They never talked about anything. So we don't know if they gave a verbal, which in this, with this kind of problem was not the proper thing but to do. And the, and the report really doesn't express that. Right. So we don't know what they did. But that, it's absolutely crazy. But it's a good indicator of a culture that doesn't follow the rules. And again, this isn't the first time Lion Air's had a problem. They put an airplane, a Dash 800, 737-800, in the water. They have had other problems. And by the way, after the accident, they still had some, some incidents involving their airplanes. We, at least when I was with the NTSB and you were with the NTSB, we did that look back. We looked at their prior history. We looked at what was, was happening subsequently. We did it with ValueJet. We dissected every ValueJet event looking for the systemic problem. A lot of it was oversight. It was a rush to grow. Lion Air, their CEO has said, I want to be the largest air carrier in the world. They're buying airplanes. They got more money. They're throwing a lot of money to be the biggest fleet, but they aren't throwing the money to be the biggest trained operator. That's difficult. That kind of growth is very difficult. In fact, the the, uh, Chennai was telling us a story about the washout rate a couple yeah. of years ago, being at least 15% of every class to today, nobody washes out. Yeah. So, And we got some of those issues in here with the first officer 
that we'll probably be talking about in either the next one or the one after podcast. We're going to do it in probably four, if not five, just on this accident report. But when you talk about training, especially with the maintenance folks, at least here in the United States, what would a typical airline mechanic get when they come to the airline? And what did this report really, I didn't see it, maybe you saw it, but I didn't see what type of training and recurrent training or oversight these folks get working on these airplanes. It's totally silent. So you don't see any of the training records listed in here. It's totally silent. This one issue with maintenance in the historical maintenance record of this airplane is a critical component of the entire sequence of events of this accident. Yet it's, it's well, at least, you know, from a standpoint of writing, it's well written that, okay, here are all the facts. Here's all the problems. Here's everything else. But then, of course, nobody analyzes what <laughs> what that meant, who's going to be held accountable for returning this airplane continuously to service in an unairworthy condition, and then, of course, what influence did it have on the overall sequence of events? Everybody's jumped ahead and said MCAS was the initiating factor. MCAS was not the initiating factor, and we're going to dissect, and I'm going to prove that, um, not only in this accident, but in Ethiopia. But the fact is, is that I'm only using information just like you now from this report. They've laid it out. They just haven't done a very good job analyzing it and determining its importance in this accident sequence. Yeah, it's, when I started to read the analysis, I was wondering what they were talking about because it didn't line up with the factuals pieces in it. It's just so much missing. And if you go back to the synopsis page, if you read just the synopsis page, they start with the accident flight in the first paragraph. The second paragraph talks about the event that took place two days before the accident. Then they talk about just in very bre uh, brief statement about something that happened, something that happened the day before the accident. And then they, bl they blame MCAS in the synopsis in the executive summary saying MCAS was poorly designed. How did you get there? There's no logic train. There's no logic trail. They just went right to MCAS. And I'm just wondering, I was thinking about this today when, you know, you and I got together earlier. And the fact is, is that let's say MCAS, that term, that piece of equipment was never known. How would this report have been written as far as not only with what went on with the maintenance, but then with this trim moving? <laughs> if it was just runaway trim, the pilots failed to handle the runaway trim element of all of this that caused the same issues. Which is trained. A runaway trim has been trained since the 50s, Yeah, since we put that kind of trim on the airplane. But we found a scapegoat with MCAS. But when you dissect all the facts, all the, the uh, conditions and circumstances, and you take it piece by piece by piece like you and I are going to do, the fact is, is MCAS wasn't involved in this accident sequence at the initiation. It was involved in the accident sequence late in the sequence when the first officer was was really losing control of the airplane. But what do you think from at least this maintenance aspect, what do you think that the industry can learn if they really read what you and I have just gone through in brevity? If they really read this information, are there lessons to be learned? Not just here, but all around the world. Well, the very first lesson is Every item needs to be written up in the logbook. There needs to be a trail. We used to struggle with this, and I don't know, you know, we used to get pilots who put something on their napkin. 
uh, say this. You know, flight attendants would say something, coffee maker and up or, or something in the cabin, sometimes serious in the cabin, would come to us on a napkin, and uh, we would fix them. Uh, but serious flight control problems, serious instrument problems, the crew always put those in the logbook. They never never gave you a verbal. Right? Always put them in the logbook. And th- that's what you need. If this airplane had a track record, and I'll guarantee you between October 9th and October 26th, right, two weeks, a little more than two weeks, this, this airplane probably had multiple faults that never saw the light of day. Mm. Right? There were more indications. Remember? Every accident investigation is a chain. And if you go back, you're going to find these problems. And they do, all the way back to the 9th of October and maybe before that. But this airplane was having a string of instrument uh, indication problems uh, with this airplane. And they were never addressed. You know, So when they keep recurring, recurring events puts the flag up. Now, every airplane at some point of, of its operational life is going to have You're going to have a problem. You fix what you believe is the problem, and then it comes in the next day or later the same day, and it has that problem again. Well, when that happens, that's when you start slowing the airplane down. That's when you start pausing and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why wasn't it fixed? So you you start digging in a little bit, and usually that means an interruption of the operational day of the airplane. And in this outfit, it's pretty clear they didn't want any of that. It is interesting, John, because, you know, for a mechanic or a maintenance tech, or in this case, what they call the engineer, when that engineer really, and I'll call it the audacity to go to a flight crew and go, we kind of got the airplane fixed. You still got problems. Take it somewhere else. And for that flight crew then to say, okay, we will. And they do. I mean, that is just unheard of. There's not a way in these United States and probably elsewhere around the world that a pilot speaking or having that kind of conversation with a maintenance engineer would have ever taken that airplane under those conditions. Not, not if he was explained out these problems. You know, if he was lied to and downplayed, maybe he'd say, well, I can probably live without that. But to have this widespread uh, instrument failure, circuit breaker failures, uh, circuit breakers popping, having these phenomenons occurring across your instrument panel, that's a no-no. And even if they were lied to, even if that those that crew was lied to, they get the airplane in the air, the stick shaker goes off. Oh, let's just keep going to destination rather than turn around and come right back. I can't believe any crew would do that. I mean, the stick shaker goes off, and the very first thing is we're going back. Yeah. Because you're right there to start with. You're yeah. already— And you don't know how the how bad the problem is. You don't know what's actually triggering it. And you don't know what effect it's going to have on other systems that are going to play out or possibly play out in route. I mean, I just think that when you look at this, this is where flight crews, not just the accident flight crew, but other flight crews were put into a position of jeopardy because maintenance returned an airplane that should have never been in the air until all these faults were absolutely cleared by process, by procedure. Not just, yeah, we'll reset the circuit breakers and make the problem go away. Well, it's clear from this report, and, I, and I'm thankful for this, right, that the flight crew was given an airplane that was unairworthy. And not only this flight crew, but at least the two previous, and God knows how many back to October 9th were in the same boat. But they were given an airplane that was unairworthy. And nobody's talking about that. Yep. It's just terrible set of circumstances. And well, you know what else no one's talking about? And we've seen this in the U.S. 
when maintenance is involved in serious accidents that kill people, sometimes the maintainers do stupid things themselves. The Eagle Lake, Texas accident, where maintenance left the screws off the leading edge of a, the horizontal stabilizer. On a Dash 8. On yeah. Dash 8, and the, and the stabilizer came loose in flight, and the flight crew was unable to control the airplane because of air, air flow issues over the flight control. Yeah. And uh, it crashed, killing everybody on board. But one of the maintainers involved with that committed suicide. The American Airlines crash in, in Chicago with the engine. That yeah, was the DC-10. DC-10. One of the people involved with that committed suicide. I had, I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but I had five circumstances like that where maintenance was involved and they committed suicide. Uh, one that I was hit close to the home for me was a Kogan Air out of Hyannis that crashed after yes, takeoff. I, I and, investigated it. And uh, there was actually five mechanics that touched that from beginning to end. Three of them left in the industry, one of which had some severe psychological problems. And because of uh, my past and understanding some of that with the experiences that I had seen, I pushed Kogan very hard to make sure that they got some counseling for that individual because I felt certain that he was probably going to go away and do something stupid. Yeah. And it's a wonder, you know, you bring these up. What about the maintenance folks that worked on this airplane, that touched this airplane? What was the recourse? What was the ramification? What's the follow-up to that? Are they still working? Are they still touching airplanes? Are they still doing these same things? Is this attitude still reside within the organization or the multiple organizations who may have touched this airplane or these systems? Where's that follow-up? Where's that accountability? You know, one of the things that, you know, we always talk about, and, and it was obvious from the congressional hearings, we want to hold somebody accountable, okay? Let's talk about who's accountable. Well, of course, they had Boeing on the hot seat. They're accountable. For what? They didn't touch any, any of that airplane in the maintenance. We know right. that Boeing was never involved in the maintenance. So how is it that you hold the manufacturer responsible for the faults that were in that airplane prior to the accident. This has nothing to do with MCAS. This has all to do with who had their hands on that airplane, who was fixing that airplane, supposedly fixing the airplane, who returned it to service in an unairworthy condition. That has nothing to do with the manufacturer. I right. don't care if it's even an Airbus, a Boeing, a Cessna. It doesn't matter. This was all on the operator. This was not on the manufacturer. Right. So Boeing's got, got some answering to do on, on not putting that in the manual and the reasons why and so on and so on. But it clearly was not the initiating event. And that's one of the things I've been saying from day one. That's one of the things that, that all the interviews I did with the press, they chopped that out of my discussions. You know, the 10-second sound bites didn't fit the scenario, so yeah. away you go. And in fact, when we went up in the hill, you and I and some others, yeah. and talked to staffers, congressional staffers, and uh, they, too, ignored all the information we gave them about the sequence of events, yep. and they just blew it off because it didn't fit what they wanted to say. And it became very evident that after we spent that time, that first hearing, it was so obvious that they didn't want what we had to tell them because it wasn't sexy, it didn't fit the respective agendas, and they weren't going to get into it. They were looking to headhunt, if you will. We're going to hold somebody accountable, whether it's at the FAA, the manufacturer, or whatever. We're going to, and they've done this in the in the most recent congressional hearings as well. So, with that, uh, you know, we're running out of time. We've uh, we've talked about this um, this maintenance aspect, John. What do you think? I mean, from a, a closing standpoint, where do you think this maintenance 
really fits. And did the, the NTSC do their due diligence and do it justice in identifying the critical influence that, you know, the maintenance had in this whole accident sequence? No, it's clear through the analysis portion of this document that they did not give enough weight to the role that maintenance provided in setting this airplane up for failure. And that's a disservice to maintenance because that means without the focus, it's not going to get addressed. And again, if this accident was being done here in the United States, who else would we have been looking at? The regulator. I don't see anything in here about regulatory oversight of any of the, the, the issues when they go in and do audits. Where's the IASA audit or the IATA audit that's done on these airlines? Were these some of the issues that were found during these recurrent audits? I would have loved to see those. I'll bet you dollars to donuts that these issues, not only on the maintenance side, but of course on the op side, are written up in these audits. There is no discussion about previous findings, which again would give you a systemic history versus an isolated event type history. Yes. In fact, the ASA certified this repair station that did this work on this airplane. I forget how long after the accident they issued their first certificate to them. I'd love to see that analysis as well. Exactly. And, and of course, EASA is now pushing back. They were involved in the certification process, which is a whole different podcast. But when you look at all of the issues that have transpired with, you know, the information that is finally starting to come out, there are so many gaps in this report. The regulatory oversight is a huge gap that hasn't been addressed, especially now as it relates to maintenance. We'll talk about it later on with the, um, the operation of the aircraft. Some of the news reports, New York Times for one, talks extensively about the equivalent of the FAA in Indonesia and how ineffective it is and how the norm to get anything approved just involves bribes. So I'm using their words, those aren't my words because I don't have any direct experience, but uh, some pretty substantial reporters have alleged uh, that that's the norm over there, and that should be addressed also by somebody in this chain because if you don't address it, it won't get you don't identify it, it won't get addressed. At the safety board, when we were there, we were constantly poking the FAA. We were constant. I mean, value jet. <laughs> I mean, you and I were responsible for a lot of folks at the FAA losing their job, high-ranking folks losing their job. Why? Because we poked, we prodded, we looked to see what their responsibility or actions and inactions were as it related to the accident. Yet I see nothing in this report at all about that kind of investigation. So it's clear from the report that it whitewashed some of the finding, uh, faults that were in there. It's also clear from the report from day one before the report, the day of the accident, that somebody was well-trained in understanding that the narrative that you give, either from a high-level representative of the airline or from the government, the narrative that you give is going to be picked up by all the press, is going to be portrayed as truthful, and even though they were not truthful, they ignored lots of facts and ignored the problems in the cockpit of this airplane ignored the problems with the airline, but they put it out there as factual that, yeah. they, that they knew what they were doing. Everything was fine. That was the narrative carried by the press around the world. Yes. Right? And when the f- report came out, 
the report says something quite different than what the, was verbalized. Exactly. And and again, just going through the report, and we're going to address this a little more in our next podcast about uh, this particular accident and, and the NTSC report, and that is the inconsistencies, even in their own report, where they've described something in the history of flight in a narrative about what the crew may or may not have been doing or saying, versus later on in the report where they give a summary of the cockpit voice recorder, which in some instances is completely different in context against what they wrote and how they put it in context in their history of flight. Well, you and I have uh, have really beat this section up. I mean, <laughs> you and I could probably spend several more hours really getting into the, the finite details because, I mean, out of the six, eight, ten pages of maintenance, just maintenance-related issues, I highlighted just about every paragraph with issues, questions, things that weren't done. The fact that, you know, I'm asking myself, well, if they did this test, who was overseeing it? Why didn't they finish it? I mean, the fact that they didn't do one of the tests because it was raining outside and they were worried about a, a lightning hazard. Really? You can't pull the airplane into a hangar. You can't wait for a little while. You can't go back and do the test later on. You're going to use a rain event as an excuse for not doing a test? Well, interesting. Like when we were comparing notes, my handwritten, handwritten notes on the side of these pages and you off highlighted, I came to that section. And uh, one of the things that I wrote down there uh, for that clearly indicates a lack of knowledge on the part of the maintenance providers. Clearly, yeah. they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Yep. And nobody followed up. And of course, they were never, and I won't say criticized because you're, you're not criticizing to criticize. You're criticizing or at least identifying the deficiencies to make improvements or at least force folks to, to make improvements, whether that's through the carrier itself, through the regulators, or a combination of both. None of those elements were really ferreted out in this report. Well, we've run out of our time today with the beginning of our dissection of the NTSC report on a Lion Air 737 MAX accident. And, and again, in subsequent shows, we're going to be dissecting each element of these uh, of this report, and eventually we'll do the same thing with the Ethiopian report. I personally have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of cut and paste out of this report that goes into the Ethiopian report, but we'll have to wait and see. But that's just a gut feeling. But for both um, myself and John, I want to wrap up and talk about the fact that we, again, appreciate our listeners. We appreciate your feedback. You can always contact us at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. That's the way to communicate. Tell us what's good. Tell us what's bad. Tell us if we're taking it too far. Tell us if, uh, if you have issues you want us to talk about. We are open. This show is for you. John and I are just trying to bring a level of expertise and reality to some of the, quote, facts, especially in reports like the NTSC report, where there just are issues that don't make sense. They don't make logical sense. And, and unless you you have that logic trail, you develop all the facts and you do it in a fair and balanced way, you're never going to improve aviation safety. I'm sitting here smiling, Greg, because I just got a, a text from an actual family member that is in California involved in the show business. And he says to me, how do you and Greg stay on script? Because it seems like you go off and you just talk about issues on. <laughs> yeah. And for everybody listening, there is no script. We let the facts, the words on the page, what we know, 
drive our conversations. Nobody is putting words in our mouth. You're going to find us at times we're not going to agree, right? And that's fine because people have differences of opinion. But we are not scripted. There's nobody writing this this uh, story up so that it sounds the best for everybody. This is essentially live discussions about issues involving aviation safety. This is our form of fireside chat, if you will. We just we throw out a, a subject, we put it in the middle of the table, and then and then John and I just chime in because we have a passion for this. We understand it. We've been in the business long enough to know it. And while, again, everybody's not going to agree, and believe me, I just found that out with Facebook, with the junior investigators and, and those folks that because they hold a pilot's license think they're experts, being an accident investigator is kind of unique because you got to step outside your normal world and you can't use yourself as the baseline of what pilots should do or, in John's case, what a mechanic should do. You're trying to find what a prudent pilot, what a prudent mechanic, what a prudent organization, what a prudent flight attendant would do, what a prudent uh, regulator should do. That is the basis for accident investigation. And all John and I try to do is bring some reality to some of the facts. And in this particular instance, that's what we're doing is dissecting the facts that have been collected by someone else. But we don't believe they've been properly interpreted or at least analyzed as to what their influence was in this accident invest, uh, this accident sequence. So. Again, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate your feedback, and we will continue to just tell it the way we think it is. May not agree. That's great. Tell us why you don't agree. We are always open for some good debate, good discussion. That's what this is all about. But it is all about us learning lessons, however we get there, learning lessons from these tragedies, because we sure don't want these folks having died in vain. On behalf of my colleague, John Golia, and myself, Greg Fife. We appreciate you listening to our podcast, Flight Safety Detectives, Fly Safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.